Well, good morning, Branch Church. Everyone here, all of our church family online, it's a blessing to be with you this morning. This morning, we have a, a little bit of a special guest. He is a, an old-time friend of mine. We went to the Horizon School of Evangelism together in 2007, and I don't think I've seen him since then. We've gotten contact on the phone, and he's a part of a ministry called Far-Reaching Ministries, which he will share with you. He is going to bless us and lead us through the Word of God this morning. Um, just a, a real quick disclaimer, he will talk about trafficking. Um, so if, if you do not want your young one to hear that or to be exposed to that, that that's okay. We just want to let you know up front. And there will also be a video he will show at the end of the message that will, um, again, just, just FYI, if you don't want your young ones to see it. So if you would, please welcome our brother in Christ, Jonathan Domingo. Well, good morning. Like Sean said, I have the privilege of being the Latin America Director for Far-Reaching Ministries. And I'm actually studying at Calvary Chapel University. And my professor is Pastor Chuck. And so... Every weekend um, when I'm traveling, uh, I'm in a different church every weekend. And so I was like, I'm going to write Pastor Chuck. And I said, hey, you know, we're rescuing children from sex trafficking and organ harvesting in Latin America. And I'd love to come out and speak at your church. He said, I would love that. The only problem is I'm, I'm no longer the pastor, the senior pastor. Um, but a, a guy named Sean is. Do you happen to know Sean Henschel? And I was like, yeah, I know Sean Henschel. I haven't seen him in 15 years, but we were in the same class at the School of Evangelism. So it kind of comes full circle because uh, Pastor Chuck and my dad go back 40 years, maybe more, 45 years. Uh, my dad has uh, been a missionary in Mexico for almost, uh, I guess, about 45 years. And so, um, so it's great to be with you. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I just want to share a little bit about who we are as Far-Reaching Ministries. Far-Reaching Ministries began about 25 years ago because our founder, Wes Bentley, was a missionary in Russia, but he had a military background. He, he was in the Marines. And 25 years ago, and, and really to this day, uh, Sudan has been one of the most war-torn and ravished countries in the world. And then it was, it was very popular, you saw it in the news, that the Muslim North would raid the Christian South and they would kidnap children, they would make them children soldiers. And so you would see pictures in National Geographic of an eight-year-old with, with an automatic weapon. And so they said, this is really bad, we need help. And what the rebels realized is that the easiest pickings were orphanages. So usually orphanages would be staffed by a, a handful of well-intentioned women, but ill-equipped to protect the children. And so they would come, and they would steal 100 kids at once. And so we began training chaplains to be both pastors in the villages, but also be armed and trained to protect the, the orphanages. That evolved into creating safe cities where, where you know, neighboring villages could come in to spend the night to be safe from these raids. And that was 25 years ago it began. And we have trained over 700 chaplains now for the South Sudan Army. We have 400 standing chaplains in Sudan. Yeah, it's incredible. And um, we've also lost 72 of our, of our chaplains in frontline service. Um, you know, it, with Nehemiah, it, it said that they would build the wall they would have a, a building utensil in one hand and a sword in the other. Well, these chaplains have a Bible in one hand because they are pastors leading churches in their villages, but they're also armed and on the front lines in, in these wars. And so we are involved in a very intense ministry. 
And about 10 years ago, because of our know-how dealing with the Muslim north of Sudan, um, we realized that we were equipped to work in other Muslim countries. And so we started something that we called Ghost Operations, which is a training and equipping and sponsoring hand of the American church into the closed countries of the Middle East. So we're in 36 countries right now, nine of the 10 most dangerous countries in the world we have pastors in. And when the United States pulled out of Afghanistan about two years ago now, um, you, you remember the pictures and we, we had uh, 22 chaplains there. So with their families and with their churches, there was about 200 people that we knew were going to get killed if we didn't do something about it. So we immediately got a team together of former SEALs, of former FBI, of former intelligence, of formal um, recon, and did a trip to a neighboring country and trekked over the mountains and met with our 200 um, pastors and, and people that we had there. And we were able to remove them from the country. But even then, we did lose six of our men in, in Afghanistan. Because what they do is, in these radical um, Islamic governments, the worst crime, according to the Quran, and actually, here, here's my Islam 101 teacher in front of me, so I hope I don't get an F on this one. But according to the Quran, the worst sin a human can commit is not rape and it's not murder. It's abandoning your Muslim faith for any other faith. I hope that's correct. Um, and so in radical Islamic countries, what they do is that they will make an example out of pastors and, and people that are converted. And not only are their lives in danger, but their spouses' lives, their kids' lives, their parents' lives, they're all in danger. And so we knew this. We knew that there was more people than just our 200 people in Afghanistan, and so we began to have a formal operation rescuing people out of Afghanistan, and as of a couple of weeks ago, we've been able to rescue 1,950 people out of Afghanistan that would have been killed by the Taliban, and so it's an incredible work that we're doing, and like I said, I'm involved in Latin America, but I just want to share with you what we're doing around the world. We have 30 chaplains in Ukraine right now. We feed 15,000 people a month. We've been able to build 200 homes, and every time, especially lately, the, the Ukraine subject has become more polarizing. I get asked, isn't the government in Ukraine corrupt? My answer is I've lived in Mexico my whole life. I, you know, the Mexican government is corrupt, and I've heard the American government is corrupt, and so we don't take any chances. So we work directly with our chaplains. We work directly with our pastors to feed, and, and we, we, we're not just feeding them. We're sharing the gospel with them. We're giving them hope. And so as you can imagine, having our hands tied in so many places, we're not looking for new things to do. Nevertheless, it's kind of our ethos that when people are suffering and people are hurting, we have to do something about it. So a little over a year ago, a pastor from a large church in Philadelphia, Joe Foch, contacted our founder and said, hey, we have a guy in Latin America. We don't say the country for security reasons. But he is working with local law enforcement, but he's doing raids into cartel territory to rescue children that um, are being used for organ trafficking and they're being um, sexually exploited. And so we immediately sent somebody from our board who was in intelligence for 25 years. He, for 10 years, he was in the highest ring of intelligence in the United States, so he knows what he's doing. And he went on one of these raids. And like I said, and Sean said at the beginning, the, I, I try to be not too explicit with these th things I say, but some things are just hard not to be. This will be one of those things that will be very disturbing and unsettling, but it is what it is. Um, so he went on one of these raids 
and going into the cartel territory. It's a w small winding road, and they were stuck behind uh, an 18-wheeler and couldn't get around him. So they ended up showing up about an hour later than expected, and by the time they got there, the cartel had been tipped off. The cartel was no longer there, but he saw the lifeless bodies of three children who had been disemboweled, who, who had had their organs removed for selling them. And so when he came back to our offices, obviously he said, you know, you, you hear about this, but when you see it, it's, we need to do something about it. So we started our work about a year ago in this country, in Latin America. We've purchased a home and we've been able to rescue over 30 children that we have in this home um, from, and you need to understand that the way it works is that the cartel works kind of at the equivalent in the United States of, of like the reservations. There, there's areas in the country that are off limits for the federal government that are um, that have their own local indigenous leadership. And so that's where they work. And so that's where we go in. And so when we say 30 children, we're talking about literally 30 children that are living in tent camp conditions where foreigners will come in to abuse them. And we've been able to rescue them from that. Now, I want to get into the word and you might be asking yourself, what in scripture could we use to shed light on such an evil and difficult subject? Well, I, I want to share with you the reality that Jesus was the example for us of what it means to go to the darkest, most hellish, and most dark and difficult places to bring light and hope and bring the gospel. This is Mark chapter 4, verse 35. I'm going to read the last few verses of chapter 4 and the first few verses of chapter 5. I won't read the whole story because it's long. I'll just read what's pertinent to what we're going to be discussing, and then I'll give you a little bit more information after I read it. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Next chapter. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had been often bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was always cutting out, uh, crying out and cutting himself with stones. So let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, and I pray that you would show us that you sent your son to this world to give us hope. You sent him to the darkness. But even beyond that, while he was in this world, he chose to go to those who are suffering, to those who are broken. And Jesus, I pray that we would follow in your footsteps and follow in your example, and that we too would be willing to go to the darkest corners of this world to bring your light and your hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Two things that I didn't read in the story that are pertinent to the story. Number one is the nature of the demon that this person has. 
It's not a demon, but rather when Jesus addresses him and asks him for his name, he says, what's your name? And he says, legion, for we are many. And in the Roman military system, a legion was four to 6,000 soldiers. And so when Jesus casts the demons from him, they go into 2,000 pigs and they jump off a cliff. So we gather that we're talking about thousands of demons that are in this poor man. Now, if you read the gospel narratives, you'll see that there's many people that have one demon, and that's enough for their existence to be miserable. Can't imagine dozens, hundreds, thousands of demons dwelling inside one person. And it tells us he lives in tombs, he's crying, he's screaming, he's shrieking, he's got superhuman strength. People are afraid of him. It's hard to comprehend how terrible this man's existence was. The second thing I want to point out that I didn't read is that when Jesus heals this man, the next thing he does is he gets right back in his boat and he crosses the Sea of Galilee again, which means that Jesus crossed the sea with only one thing in his agenda. The only reason Jesus crossed the sea and faced the storm is because he wanted to rescue one person that was living a hellish experience. That being said, I have four points for us this morning based on the story we just read. Number one is the demonic is real. And we need to realize that. Um, when we face the evil in this world, we need to realize that our enemy, what Paul says, is not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. And, and I know especially now in America, with things, with how polarized they've gotten, us as Christians, look at the system, look at the institution and are appalled by it. But we need to realize that behind the world, the system, we should not hold anger against the people rather against the powers. There's spiritual forces that are, are creating paths on which the world traverses that are evil. C.S. Lewis said that regarding the demonic, Christians tend to make one of two mistakes. Either they're obsessed with the demonic and everything is demonic, or they go in the other direction and they deny its existence and maybe believe it on paper but don't really factor it into their worldview. In the West, in the American Christian church, I believe we've gone in the other direction. Most people might believe, many people, if you look at Pew Research and stuff like that, many people have you know, stopped believing altogether in the demonic or the diabolical. But the reality is, I was listening to an interview recently, and somebody said, I see so much evil in the world, I couldn't possibly believe that God exists. And when I heard that, the first thing that came to my mind is I have seen so much evil in this world that I can't possibly believe that the demonic doesn't exist. How do you explain this? How do you explain the deep hatred, for example, in Africa? That you'll have two tribes that will butcher each other. They have the same ancestral gods. They, they have the same skin color, same religion, same geographic location. The only thing that changes is, you know, generational feuds going back, you know, millennia. And they live a mile away. And you can see that in Africa. You can see that in, in you know, parts of America with gang violence. And it, it, how, do you, how do you get to that level of hatred? There's only one answer. The demonic is real. And here's the thing. Jesus showed us this. He was aware of the demonic, and he did not fear the demonic. On the contrary, he ran towards the places where everybody else was running from. This is one of our slogans at Far Reaching Ministries. We run to the places where everybody else is running from. This person was terrifying. Nobody wanted to get close to him. 
And that's exactly the kind of person that Jesus wanted to reach. The demonic is real. Point number two, there will always be opposition. I read the first story because before he even gets to the demonic, he has to face a storm. And this is the reality for Christians. It is impossible to live a life of purpose without facing opposition. It is impossible to be faithful and obedient to Jesus without facing storms. Now, I read this version, it's the ESV, because I like some of the way it translates some things, and it tells us in that version that Jesus had a pillow, which means he was tired. Have you ever gone on a road trip and you're not driving and you take a pillow? You take a pillow because your sole intention is making a three-hour trip feel like a 15-minute trip because you're sleeping the whole way. And so Jesus is exhausted. He takes a pillow. He falls asleep in his pillow. He's so fast asleep that even though they're in the middle of a storm that lifelong fishermen are afraid they're going to die in, the storm doesn't wake him. He has to be shaken awake. And the disciples say, do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus wakes up and in an instant calms the storm, which tells me something, obviously, that Jesus has power over the storm. But it shows me something else, that if Jesus had the power to stop the storm, he had the power to prevent the storm. Why didn't Jesus preemptively just say, Father, I'm exhausted. I've got my pillow. Just just give me a couple hour nap. That's all I need. Why? Did he not preemptively stop the storm? Because the gospel narrative is full of lessons. And he wanted his disciples to know, and that includes us, that when you obey Jesus, storms are coming. It is impossible to live a life of fidelity without having a life that's full of of obstacles. you know, I was a pastor for 12 years, and I loved being a pastor, and I got to pastor a very lively church, much like this one, and I got to see a lot of people become Christians, a lot of young people become Christians, and that was wonderful. But there's one thing that was um, recurring, and it, was, it became funny to me, and it's not funny, but it, it, it happened so often that it became funny, which was that I'd have a new Christian come up to me and say, Jonathan, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything right, I'm going to church, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, I'm repenting of sin, I just don't get it. Why are bad, bad things still happening to me? <laughs> and the reason it was amusing is because that's typical of a new believer. Because we wrongly assume that doing things right means an easier life. But Jesus taught the opposite. Doing things right does not mean an easier life. It actually means a more difficult life. But a life that is worth it. A life full of glory. Once again, Jesus is our example. And he said, and, and John, my time has come to be glorified. What was he talking about? Fame, fortune? He's talking about the cross. Because for God, glory, purpose, obedience, and sacrifice are all describing the same event. When God calls you to something, there will be opposition. There will be storms. Like I said, I was a pastor. I had no idea. If you would have asked me a couple years ago if I saw myself working in a ministry as complex and as, you know, intense as far-reaching ministries, I would have said, God bless Wes, you know, our founder. I went to Africa with him a couple times, went with him to Russia. but I had no plans on, on being part of this ministry. 
But now looking back, I see that even though there's opposition, God allows opposition because opposition gives you the fortitude to be able to stand up and make a difference. It, it trains you. It is a training that we need. And sometimes this training, we don't understand that it's meant for a future date. When we were, um, when I was at the church, we had two bands and we would travel every year and we'd do events and, and I, I would preach and it was, it was a wonderful time. And, and one of these tours, right as we were leaving, one of the cities we were going to, the main drug lord got killed. Now, if you know anything about the way drug trafficking works in Latin America, is that it's safe when there is one cartel that controls a city because they're just doing their business. But whenever there's a feud between cartels, that's when it gets extremely violent. And this city, this was 2018, if you talk to a Mexican that watches the news, they will tell you this was one of the most brutal and bloody wars over a city in the history of, of Mexico. We didn't know it was going to be that bad. We just knew that it was going to be violent. And so when you're 1,500 miles away, it's easy to feel courageous. And so I said, we said, yeah, we're going to do the trip, and we're not going to cancel that event. And so we get there, and everybody is dumbfounded that we're there. We have a 40-passenger charter bus, a 15-passenger van, a couple vehicles, and we're in a caravan and stopping for gas. And the people at the gas station are looking at us square eyes saying, what are you doing here? We're doing a Christian event. And you know, they're like, what? And literally on every street corner, people with walkie-talkies. And they told us, if you want to know where the shootouts are happening, go to this website. And it, the name of the city was Reynosa. It's Reynosa Code Red, which was kind of them to tell us so that we knew where the shootouts were happening. But it was stressful of them to tell us because then we knew where the shootouts were happening. And we had 60 people on their phones realizing there's a shootout two blocks in that direction and a shootout five blocks in that direction. And literally while we were there, there was a shootout between a military helicopter and a drug convoy literally shooting into the sky. That's kind of the, the image that we had. So we moved the event from 7 p.m. because the cartel said literally, if there's anybody out after dark, it's not our fault if anybody gets hurt. And so we moved the event till, to noon, and we had 1,000 people show up. It was the second largest event on that trip. And so it was just confirmation. Where things are dark, people need hope. And so we had a great event. The next day, we were going to go to a neighboring city, which is usually a more dangerous city. But because of the war in that one city, we knew there was nothing more dangerous in that city. But we also knew that in places where it's drug cartel controlled, it's, it's dangerous traveling between cities. And so we were nervous. And as we were leaving the city, a pickup truck overtook us, blocked the two-lane freeway. Four armed men popped out and pointed their automatic weapons at us. And so we stop, and we try to pull a UE. If you've ever tried to pull a UE on a two-lane highway on a 40-passenger charter bus, the UE point uh, turned into a three-point turn, which turned into like a 37-point turn. Like if you can imagine that, just staring down the barrel. And we were finally able to, to do a U-turn and head right back into the war-torn city that we had just left. I told you guys at the beginning that my dad's a kind of a legend and pastor and missionary. And so by that time, we were all afraid. We, were, we went from being extremely nervous to being afraid. And so I called my dad. And I was expecting some sympathy. <laughs> I was expecting my dad to say, you know what, son? Good for you trying to preach the gospel in dangerous. You're, you should come home now. So I called him and I said, Pops, we need to cancel. 
you know, th I mean, I just can't expose my team this way. And his answer was the preparation I didn't know I needed, and it got seared into my heart. He said, don't cancel. If you have to go by yourself, go by yourself. But Christians have been putting themselves in harm's way for 2,000 years because they believe in the power of the gospel. And what will that city feel when you are, in essence, communicating to them that their city is too dangerous for Jesus to be preached in? If you have to go by yourself, go by yourself, but don't cancel. And that line, I didn't realize I would meet for a further date, that Christians have, for the past 2,000 years, placed themselves in dangerous circumstances because they believe in the power of the gospel. And this is the reality. The majority of Christians around the world are at risk because they're Christians. Not, not so in this country. And there may, might be some persecution coming. There might be some difficulty. But comparatively, other Christians are at a huge risk just for being Christians. And they put their life on the line and augment their risk by being vocal about their Christianity and by sharing Jesus with other people. This has been part of the Christian ethos for 2,000 years, that we don't consider our life as valuable to ourselves. Or how Jesus said it, that if you want to save your life, you must lose it. That, every, that anybody who looks to preserve their life, that's the people that are in danger of losing their life. I need to get through the last two points a little bit quicker. So point number one is the demonic is real. Point number two is there will always be opposition. Point number three is Jesus can calm the storm. I love this. Jesus does ask you to go into dangerous situations. Jesus does not ask you to live a comfortable life with no challenges. But he does promise to be with you. He does promise to accompany you. Um, I was listening to a sermon recently of a pastor who lost his daughter um, to cancer. And he read the scripture that said, um, look at the sparrows, yet none of them falls. And I think the New King James says, apart from your father's will. But the NIV says, apart from your father. And if you look at the original, it just says, apart from your father. And the idea is this. That the Bible does not say that birds do not fall. It says that when birds do fall, the father is there. And, and that is our promise. Our promise is not that our life won't have difficulties. Our promise is that even in the midst of difficulties, we're in the boat with somebody who has the power to calm the storm. And I know I've been talking about really intense things, and when I talk about a little bit more and share some stories about the kids, you're, you'll say, my problems are so dinky. But believe me in this. They don't have to be huge problems in order for them to be huge problems for you. And God is a good father. And if it's, if it's a burden for you, it's on his agenda. And he loves you, and he's with you, and he's able to calm storm. Obedience is the safety net of the believer. Um, Corey Ten Boom said, the safest place you can be is in the center of God's will. Conversely, the most dangerous place you can be is in disobedience. You don't believe me? Ask Jonah, you know, <laughs> who had a, a hard calling, and in order to, you know, sidetrack that hard calling, he thought he was going to make his life easier by fleeing, and he ended up almost sinking his ship, getting swallowed by a fish, being half digested by a fish, being vomited by a fish, that all sounds worse than going to Nineveh. <laughs> Obedience is the safety net of the believer. And point number four, do it for the one. Jesus crossed the ocean 
crossed the sea, healed this man, got right back in his boat, and crossed again. Once again, Jesus shows us the Father's heart. And what's the Father's heart? When there's one lost sheep, he leaves the 99. When there's one lost coin, he flips the house over and makes sure he finds it. The um, Good Samaritan didn't heal a village. He helped one person. This is what God shows us. We ought to do for one what we wish we could do for all. The need in this world is so overwhelming. The amount of children that are being trafficked, it is being said that 80,000 children have been smuggled across the Mexican border for the purpose of sex trafficking in the United States. You, you listen to that and you're like, okay, what can I do? But the reality is that if we as a body of Christ each have this mentality as individuals, the need is too great for me to do something about it, nothing gets done. But when we each have the mindset of, I will do for one what I wish I could do for all, the body of Christ is huge. And the body of Christ is capable of making a difference. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, which means that when the church stands up, meaning individuals in the church saying, I can make a difference. I will make a stand. I will be faithful and obedient. The Bible says the gates of hell will not stop the church. You get the gates are a protective measure, which means that when the church decides to stand up and take ground from the enemy, the fortifications of hell are not strong enough to withstand the power of the body of Christ standing up and taking territory. This doesn't happen when we stand at a distance and say, man, I hope somebody does something about it. It happens when we as individuals say, I will do for one what I wish I could do for all. I'm going to show a, a video for those watching online. I do apologize. It shows the children's faces. It shows our home. So for security reasons, we, we can't show the video. Um, but it, it, it's practically a, a video with some information about sex trafficking and then just our, our kids playing. But you do you know, the live audience will be able to see it. So if you could show that video, please. Word. 
I know that it's just kids playing, but at the same time, it's such an emotionally charged video because um, the contrast, like those are the conditions that they live in when we rescue them. What happens is in these tribal communities, that like I said, it's part of their culture and part of the reason why this can't just be a rescue operation, but it has to be a gospel operation. They need to know that there are certain things that are wrong and it's normal in their culture to impregnate 13, 14, 15 year old girls. And so the cartel will come in and will offer them more money than they could ever imagine to take their children and they'll take their children from the time they're months old. Like I said, I, I try not to be too, too graphic, but at the beginning I said something that was fairly graphic. This will be fairly graphic as well. Kids are abused from the time they're months old. We, we have a, a four-year-old girl that needs reconstructive surgery and has sexually transmitted diseases. And th this will be the, the, the heaviest thing I'll say to this message, then I'll tone it down a little bit. Um, we were with the tribal leaders and they've realized that there's a market where superstitious rich people will actually pay to consume human organs. And they literally, you know, it, in the tribal territory, you can just see this honor respect culture where the tribal leader, the people would not stand in front of them, they wouldn't talk in front of them, was crying, saying, help us. And then you see them playing with a dog and playing the piano and it's just this contrast of hope. You know, I often get asked about the little blonde girl. I'll get asked, is that, um, is that one of the missionary's kids? And the reality is her mother's a prostitute that was impregnated by a Westerner. And because she was blonde, there was a premium for her and she's actually one of the girls that has, was abused most deeply. And you see the video and you couldn't tell, like you, you, she's actually the liveliest of, of the group. And, and, and in person, she's the same way. Um, and you, you just wouldn't gather that from seeing her playing the piano and smile. But th this is the work. It's not just rescue, it's redemption. It's giving these girls an opportunity to have a childhood and play and, you know, play fetch with their dogs. And... Um, this is uh, the home we purchased and earlier this year we started working with an existing ministry and coming alongside of them helping them raise support to, to be able to rescue more kids and um, so now we have three homes we have the home we started we started working with a, a girls home and also a boys home we have four boys that we have rescued and when I went the first time to visit um, there's one boy who's 10 years old who we rescued literally out of a brothel he was a, pro, a boy prostitute, and he, that's the abuse that he endured. And um, when I saw him, I put my hand on his shoulder, just out of inertia, and, and he almost shrieked, like he, he's, you know, dealing with trauma. And um, he had in his arms the whole time a little teddy bear. And we took him to the mall. We bought outfits for all of them. There's one of them that wanted to be a lawyer, and he was dressed so big and span. And we bought him new shoes and new coat and just made him look like the lawyer he will be when he's a little bit older. But this kid at the mall, you know, eating ice cream, was holding on to his teddy bear the whole time. And it, it reminded me, like in the cartoons where somebody's holding a blanket or something. It's like their little emotional little help. And after spending the day with them, um, we had to leave. And so we started to say goodbye. And this kid said, don't leave. And he ran to his room. And he pulled out another teddy bear, 
it wasn't the one he had all day, but it was a teddy bear. It was so worn that it doesn't have the eyes anymore. It's, and he gave it to me. I accepted it because I saw that he had a, a second teddy bear, but it was so valuable. And when I got home, I was so excited to share that with my children. I have three children. I have a 10-year-old who's actually here with me, a 7-year-old and a 2-year-old. And obviously, this is too much information for my kids, so I just... What I tell him is, Daddy rescues kids that have been stolen. That's what I tell him. And so I said, hey, you know, we rescued this little boy, 10 years old, Juanito's age. Juanito's my son. And um, we were able to rescue him. And he was so grateful that he gave me his teddy bear. And um, I, I, you wouldn't think it, but obviously it's the first thing that a 7-year-old thinks. He said, that's great, Daddy. Were you able to give him back to his parents? And, the, you know, that's what's heartbreaking. His parents were the ones that were trafficking him. And that's the situation about half the time. It's, it's the, the impoverished or the drug addict parents that sell the kids. And so I had to tell her, I was like, this kid's parents aren't around, but we have a home. Or he has a family, and we are his family. And this is what I mean. We ought to do for one what we wish we could do for all. I know these children's names. I know these children's stories. And I've seen the growth, and I've seen how they come afraid. And it's not like they grow up to be adults and it's like nothing ever happened. If you know anything about trauma, you can heal and still have battle scars. And we are praying for healing, but also knowing that even if God heals them completely, there will be scars that tell a story. But it's a story of hope. It's a story of grace. It's a story of, of, of the gospel. This is Jesus. Jesus goes into the most hellish of places to bring light and bring hope. It is baffling and frankly infuriating the initiative that evil men have to do evil. I, I do not comprehend it. One of the things that is most terrifying that I usually, I often speak with my team about is who are the clients? Like, why is this a thing? Like, why is this a profitable business? And, you know, I have kids, and just as a warning, they're perverts that don't look like perverts. You walk down the street, and you, you just think that they're an average Joe. There is evil. And evil men have such initiative to do evil. And many godly men are waiting for prompting, are waiting for direction, are waiting to be told what to do. And if godly people showed the initiative that evil people show, this world would be a different place. We cannot afford the luxury of waiting around, waiting for a prompting. I, I get it, I get it, that we want to do what God is asking us to do. God has asked you to care for the orphan, to care for the destitute, to care for the weak. The question is not what has God asked you to do, the question is, Will we be obedient to do that which he has asked us to do, even though there will be oppositions, even though there will be difficulties, even though it won't be easy? I brought um, three ministries from, from our ministry that you can be involved if you choose to. The first one is Potatoes for Grandmothers. This is um, our program to help the widows of the fallen and the elderly in Ukraine. They, they um, are, are destitute. 
I also have our um, ghost operation pastors. If you would like to sp sponsor a pastor in the Middle East who is in a persecuted country, you can do so. All, all these sponsorships are $75 a month. We send them over $500 a month. So we need to raise multiple supporters per each individual. And lastly, and the one that's closest to my heart, obviously, is our children in Latin America. So if you'd like to sponsor a child, it's $75 a month. And um, I always say this, it's very important to us. We want to be a biblical ministry, which means that we ought to be faithful and tithing to our local church, and we give to missions above and beyond that. So I would ask you not to take from your tithe money to give to rescuing these children, but I would also say, being a pastor, knowing the statistics, about 80% of churchgoers don't tithe. And so I know that this is compelling, and I know probably everybody here wants to do something for a child, and I would love you to do that. So I would just ask for you to start to commit to giving to your local church if you want to sponsor a child as well. It's very important for us that you do so. And so if sponsoring a child and being faithful to your local church is a stretch and you choose to do it, God bless you. You can't afford to do it. You know, be faithful to your local church and God will bless you and you will eventually be able to. But I also know that in this day and age, $75 a month is dinner with the family if you have a small family. <laughs> I can't, I can't eat dinner with my family for $75 a month in the States anymore. Um, and there will be people that would want to sponsor multiple children or maybe a, a child and a widow or a child and a pastor. Whatever God leads you to do, whatever God puts on your heart. But remember this. We want to do for one what we wish we could do for all. We have code names for all of our projects for security reasons, and our code name for the house that we have is Little Starfish based on a story um, that there was a huge storm that blew up tens of thousands of starfish on the, the sand. And they were all going to die unless they got thrown back into the ocean. And so a small kid goes back in tens of thousands and just starts throwing them in. And an older man says, what are you doing? There's too many of them. What you're doing doesn't matter. And he throws one and he says, it mattered to that one. We ought to do for one what we wish we could do for all. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that just as, as we've talked about a difficult subject, I also know that it's a subject full of hope because you are working. And we are seeing the fruits of children's lives being changed forever because somebody cared. Because somebody was willing to go. And I know for all of us, if anything were to ever happen to our child or our grandkid, we would lose our minds and we would do everything and anything to get them back. These children, they don't have somebody who's coming for them. Their parents aren't. The government isn't. I pray that they know that we are, that someone's coming, that there's hope in the horizon. I thank you so much for this church. Thank you for Pastor Sean, Pastor Chuck. <coughs> Pray you bless him. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.